We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 174. Our guest today is one of my favorite riders to watch. He was Team Gold at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, as well as Team Silver at the 2004 Games in Athens, 2016 in Rio, and just got back from Tokyo where they won Team Silver. He was also ranked number one in the world in 2017 in the Longines FEI World Rankings. You probably know who I'm talking about, but in case you don't, please welcome our guest today, McLean Ward. Well, I would love to hear about how you kind of first got into the horse world. Well, it's a, it's a family affair. Both my parents were professionals. My, my father was a top Grand Prix rider and horse dealer. My mother rode hunters, first as an amateur, and then became a professional trainer. So, you know, I grew up on a farm. And always there were there were horses around and ponies and you know I had the opportunity very early on. Did you kind of like have the the love for it from the start? Did you kind of feel like oh it's like a family thing I got to do it? Was that passion kind of always there from the beginning? I don't a hundred percent remember. I mean it was certainly our life, and I don't think I was very good at it at the beginning. And I think horse sports typically for boys start a little slow. It's not the, the mainstream yeah. sport for most, you know, young boys. So I think the beginning was a little slow and, and not very successful. I was, I was a, there was a lot of stories. I was a very bad pony rider. Didn't show a lot of promise or talent. But, you know, in my early teens, I started riding horses and doing equitation and some small jumpers. And things started to come together. And, and I started to have some success, which I definitely think, you know, propelled my interest. The other thing was pretty early on, my parents were divorced. And my father was, you know, on the, the horse show tour and Grand Prix tour. And it was a way that I could really spend time and interact with my dad. So, you know, I think that also probably drew me into it a little bit. Did you feel like there was like a moment in time or or a certain um, thing that happened that you feel like it went, that really like it started clicking for you that you started kind of finding that success? When I was 14, I won an event called the Talent Derby, which I don't think I was expected to win. It's a, a pretty large jumper event for young riders. And that same year, I won the USCT finals. And I think that was a real turning point. I think, you know, people around me and people in the sport started to recognize that maybe I wasn't that untalented pony rider. It made me feel like I could possibly be successful at this. And and again, I think that that propelled the interest and the desire to do it better and work harder and and see how far I could. At what point were you like, okay, I love this. I'm finding some success in it. I want to be doing this for the rest of my life. Like at what point were you like, I think I want to make a career out of this like my parents did? You know, I I think it it just happened naturally that it was a career path. I I wasn't the greatest student in the whole world. I I didn't enjoy school that much. And I think that as you started to have some success and I enjoyed the sport and I was actually quite interested in the in the business that, you know, that started to happen. And, you know, I, I decided to follow my parents' footsteps. And then, you know, as all of us in life, some, some personal things happen and different family issues and business. And then at some point, I, I started to get more and more involved. 
Awesome. Do you have a like a specific memory in your mind or like a high point or turning point in your career where you you know you were a young professional learning and growing in the sport in that avenue and then kind of you know something happened or certain things happened that kind of changed the trajectory where you were then looking at you know aspirations like the Olympic Games. I think sometimes I'm still waiting for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I was, you know, at 15, I was Grand Prix Rookie of the Year. That was that was quite a big deal, particularly to do at that age. That year, I also had some top placings in some national-level Grand Prix. And when I turned 17, I was actually hired by a gentleman by the name of Harry Gill to ride his Grand Prix horses, who was the longtime sponsor of Rodney Jenkins, Katie Prudon, DZ Madden. And that was a huge confidence boost, no doubt, to, to be considered of the quality to, to ride his horses. Would you say that you have like a, a heart horse or a horse of a lifetime that kind of sticks out in your career? I've been lucky to have a few, you know, obviously Sapphire, and H.H. Azure and Clinton, I mean, these are spectacular horses. They've yeah. been, you know, career-changing mounts. I, I think I always circle back to Rothschild. You know, Rothschild was a different story. He was actually mm-hmm. to the last horse my father picked out. He was a, a horse that you would have said career was a bit journeyman-ish most of his career. And then there came a point in coming into 2014 that he was the best horse I had in my string. And he found a, we found a way to to kind of up our game and he, he almost won the world championships and won a team medal and the next year won the Pan Am Games and really surprised the world, I think, where a horse who had been, you know, a nice competitive horse for a number of years. And he was a difficult horse for me. He was a bit unorthodox. He had an incredible personality, but challenging. And, you know, that was that was a real uh, lesson, that horse. That horse taught me probably more than the others and, and it was harder, but that made it all the more rewarding. Do you feel like you have a certain type of horse that you kind of gravitate towards or um, would you say is like your ride? No, I like a good horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I'm actually not that, you know, driven by, by type. I mean, listen, we all, you know, we all want a big, tall, athletic, narrow, beautiful gallop, nice mouth. You know, we all like those things. That's like, you know, saying you like 75 or no humidity. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, 95 isn't so bad when you compare it to 20. So, you know, I, I, I like a good horse. I like a horse who, who at the end of the day gets what we're asking of them. You know, they, you, you, see, you see very talented horses who always seem to make a mistake or find a way to have a fence down. And then you see horses that maybe don't, you know, aren't 100% orthodox or correct, but they jump clean round. And to me, that's a sign that they understand mentally what the goal is mm-hmm. and what we're, we're trying to teach them to do and, and do with them. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And obviously all of your horses have different personalities and different ways that you go about riding them. They all go differently. What would be some of your go-to exercises that you like to set up at home to kind of get ready for these events? As you said, you know, you've got to really treat each horse as an individual and not treating them as an individual with their strengths, strengths, weaknesses, their, their, their physical characteristics. But I have a, a base system, you know, really top shape athletes. And, and so that, whether it be through the flat work, through changing up the variety of exercises from flatting to doing hill work to using the, 
Walker, um, you know, trying to really keep it interesting. And just like you see in humans, you know, multi-training. We do a lot of gymnastic work in our program. We really believe in that. He had taken, and we, we still have, we still rely on that quite a bit. And then, you know, I think one of the things we, we tried to do is not, not overdo it. We, we trust our program. Program we we trust our training and don't uh, you have to be a little bit careful not to do you know five when two is necessary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Do you get super nervous before you get into the ring? Do you feel like kind of over time you have kind of developed a system or a, a kind of a process that you go through for that kind of mental toughness before you go into a big venue? This is a this is a that's a long topic. <laughs> Yeah, right. I get very nervous and it hasn't gotten any easier. And people are always surprised when I say that. I, I typically have a pretty stoic, but that's a facade, you know, the, the, the You're freaking out inside. inside <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, it's something I've had to deal with my entire career. I, I I have an incredible amount of self-worth, so to speak, on my performance, connected to my performance and I never see what I'm doing in the sport like people do from the outside. You know, I always feel a little bit like the underdog. I never see it from the same view. And even when I can look at it in my, you know, realistic mind, I don't, I don't see it in that way in the moment. So going back to 2008, I I decided that that was a part of my game that really was having me come up short, nerve, focus. And I decided to do something about it. So I went to see a gentleman by the name of Bob Rutella, who was a, a very well thought of sports psychologist, particularly in golf. So we did uh, cross over to other sports and other businesses. And I, I really tried to, to figure out a process um, that I could manage that anxiety and the nerves better. And it was a real learning journey. There was a lot of stuff that I already did, but I didn't have really a process of doing the, those things. And when Everything is going great. It's not that difficult. When there are variables or challenges that are out of your control, that's when it becomes more challenging. And instead of spiraling out of control, if you have a good process for organizing uh, your thoughts and you know getting the butterflies to fly right, so to speak, you really can turn those challenges into to a positive and to something that actually helps you focus. So, I mean, I could go on for hours about yeah. it. I'm very interested in it. Um, but it's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for me to this day. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I freely admit, you know, before the second round in Tokyo, I mean, the entire day I was sick to my stomach in the hotel. I mean, even to the point where you have, like, physical pain. But, you know, I am able to focus that energy. And, and listen, I don't master it. I, I still have bad days because of, of it of my nerves, but uh, more often than not, they, they help me, you know, rise to the, to the moment. Let's say you are getting ready for just a, like a, a Grand Prix at WEF. Walk me through kind of what that day of looks like for you and how you prepare. So typically WEF, for example, would be a Saturday night Grand Prix. I enjoy competing at night. I think it allows, particularly in, in Wellington, where we have so many balls in the air, you know, there's a, that's what that's a real, you know, three ring circus, uh, so to speak. It's nice to be able to really focus on the on the big event of the week and not have the outside distraction. So, 
typically up until lunchtime, one o'clock, you know, we'd exercise horses. We, we have some, sometimes horses competing uh, or a student. I don't have a lot of students, but possibly competing. You know, we have some other responsibilities. I tried normally to finish my day by one or two. You know, the latest two, go for a nice quiet lunch by myself somewhere. And actually, then I take it for a little while so that I feel like I'm really focused and fresh for the class. You know, around five o'clock, head over to the venue and, you know, have a process for walking the course. Typically, I have one or two students in the Grand Prix with me most weeks. And, you know, we, we have a very well organized plan beforehand so that everybody knows their role and their responsibility. The, the competition itself is, is, again, letting it play out. It's not if you're trying to fix things or, or, or make it happen in that moment. Normally, it's a little late. Yeah, definitely. When you are kind of balancing the dynamic of your career and your training program with your clients, how how do you do that? Do you find that it is like during a course walk or something and you're working on, you know, your track and your plan and then also with your clients? Is it does that process help because you can kind of, you know, walk through it in in a different light? So tell me how you kind of navigate that dynamic. Well, I mean, I'm very lucky to be in a situation where, I mean, I wouldn't even refer to them as clients. They're, they're probably the wrong word. I, uh, you know, I, I have, you know, up to two at a given time, you know, students who are you know, Olympic level candidates, right? Yeah. I had, uh, yeah. I had two of my three students this year on the short list. Adrian obviously was, was at the WEG, uh, winning team and trial with me. So, you know, these are, these are professional athletes, yeah. um, who, you know, I'm mentoring, I'm helping them organize, helping them structure how they're going to build their, their operation and their team. But they're also, very, very capable of doing it. And sure. so it, it's a little bit of a different setup than, than, than we see in, in the, the horse industry, typically of a client-teacher relationship. Um, but yeah, we you got to compartmentalize. You know, you, you're trying to foresee their problems. You're trying, and again, I, I go back to our, our pre-game routine, our organization. You know, what you see on Grand Prix Day is the end of the story. The, the work the work beforehand, and that's a cliche, but that's the key, right? Everybody knows what to do in a certain moment, including what to do when things don't go quite right. So, yeah, I would say that that you're trying to foresee problems. You're trying to, you know, analyze particularly the course for each one's horse. And I kind of compartmentalize it in my brain. Um, sometimes it can be challenging, particularly if something goes wrong for one of them and you you want to deal with it in the moment. Sometimes you have to shelve it and, and do your job. But you also get into a mode, particularly when you've done it for a while, that, you know, it, it, it's sort of like it, it kind of runs on autopilot. Right. I wanted to thank our sponsor today, O3 Animal Health. If you haven't heard about them before, their signature product is Equine Omega Complete. It's a specifically formulated blend that does so much more than simply add weight if needed or produce a shiny hair coat for your horse. These products support healthy cell function in the horse. They cleanse the cell membrane. Every cell in a horse's body is surrounded by fat. Their products provide the healthiest fat possible so that nutrients and waste can get in and out of the cells. O3 Animal Health is used by some of the top horse breeders, trainers, horse owners, vets, and it supplies a complete balance of beneficial fatty acids to provide the perfect fat for proper cell function. If you want to learn more, I had Kathleen Downs, who is a representative over at O3 Animal Health on the podcast. She was episode 122. If you want to go check it out, or 
or you can visit their website at o the number three animalhealth.com. And if you want to try out any products, use the code podcast for $10 off any product. Thank you so much. O3 animal health. All right, let's get back to the episode. I want to talk Olympics a bit, but first tell me a little bit about how 2020 impacted your plan. Did you have to do a lot of restructuring and regrouping? Obviously, you have to be very strategic about having your horses peak at the optimal time. So how did that year shift kind of impact your plan looking ahead to Tokyo? You know, I think the year of COVID, so to speak, um, really affected sports. And, you know, you always want to put it in, in perspective because obviously it affected a lot of people in the world more than more than the consequence of sport. But, you know, the reality is, is, is athletes have a certain, if we look at the horse as the, as the true athlete of the, of the partnership, you know, there's a, there's a window of time that they're capable of performing at that level physically. And you certainly saw horses that were, possibly going to go in 2020 to the Olympics and perform well, get a year older or have an injury or just not be be up to that level. You saw horses, including my own, that were out with an injury in 2020 and horses like All In, for example, and come and, and have, a, have a great game. So you saw horses like Jessica Springsteen and Laura Krauts who weren't ready in 2020 experience-wise and, and the year delay brought them into play. So it really affected our sports. For myself, you know, I, I don't know exactly how 2020 would have played out uh, looking at how it all unraveled, but our mentality and the mentality that I tried to project on my, my students or the people that I had some influence over was this is a situation we have. Now we have to navigate from here forward. Right. Um, and as that situation continued to change and develop, we continued to change and develop and look at what was possible with our own string of horses, who, who looked like they could be informed physically and health-wise first, and then performance-wise second, and not really lock ourselves down to one you know, not pigeonhole ourselves into one way of thinking. Sure. I don't think in May of 2020, I would have ever thought I would be taking contagious to the Olympic Games. That that ended up happening in the fall when the horse came back from the injury and, and seemed in great form. And I started to have the idea in the back of my brain that that was a possibility. Amazing. Yeah, it seemed to affect everyone differently, but it affected everyone and their plan. Yeah, and I, I remember, you know, I love to see how things happen in other sports and, and how things are organized. I, I always look to other sports and think they have such such resources behind them that there's got to be something to be learned from the way that they do things. And there was a, there was a very good story about a, an NFL lineman who had, had multiple injuries, and instead of basing his performance off of what he did when he was 20 or his physical abilities at what he did when he was 20, there was always the new status quo, the new normal, and how to make the best of that. He ended up having a 15-year career as a lineman, which is pretty remarkable. And I, I thought about that a lot going into last year. You know, you know, a lot of times, typically, when we build to a championships, it's a it's a two two year run, maybe even longer than that, but it's a two year pretty specific run up to a major championships, and you have an idea in your head, and you don't waver from it too much. That wasn't possible in 2020. I mean, it, it changed daily, and you had to be able to be flexible and change with it, or else 
it was going to overwhelm you and frustrate you. Right. Yeah, definitely. So obviously the Olympic Games became a reality for you. So give me the rundown of what that experience was like, kind of the behind the scenes and the process leading up to kind of like the travel over there, settling in. Like, how did you deal with the jet lag? What was that all like? I mean, the the trial process this year also was a little bit up in the air. Horse shows were changing how many riders they invited. We we typically have, have a five and five set up and we use observation events, but that unraveled because horse shows went from five to four riders being invited for teams. And it, it got a little bit messy. So the, the, the qualifying process was a little bit unclear and really down to the wire, which, you know, created a stress and anxiety. As well, I had, you know, two other riders that I had some responsibility for, you know, also fighting for a spot on the team. So it, it, it was complicated. I think once the team was named, you know, you work backwards then from the Olympic. Once the team was named, uh, Robert, with, you know, in consultation with the group, we, we knew we had this game plan. We, we felt that to be able to have our best chance to win a team medal, we needed to use a little bit of strategy to get the most out of every situation we had. And so we, we went, you know, we had that game plan very early on after the team was named and all, you know, accepted our roles and felt good about our roles in that. You know, traveling to Tokyo, you know, these horses are, are you know, obviously in the peak of, of fitness and in health and you know they're pretty seasoned on travel so I, I don't think that was particularly stressful on them the facilities in tokyo were phenomenal um absolutely first class couldn't have been better uh it was a shame that they weren't able to have an audience because it was a spectacular stadium um yeah. for the sport and for us it was a different experience you know every olympics has been uh, a somewhat different experience for me i mean obviously i've been lucky enough to 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 do two five of them and you know they've they've been at different times in my life so so that's been a different experience they've been different parts of the world with pros and cons we typically don't stay at the village so we were at a hotel which was very comfortable but you know you were isolated you were basically in the room most of the day other than going to the venue or you know meals in the hotel so so you know that was a, a long period of time to, to sit and think about it and particularly with our game plan where i wasn't going to compete until the Till the first round of the team, you know, I'd gone three weeks without jumping a fence over a meter forty myself. So yeah. that that brought a that brought a bit of anxiety. But you really have to trust your plan. That you know that that comes down to the mental strength. Right. How was that weird that they you didn't have an audience cheering? Did that help the nerves that you didn't have all the people? How how was that? No, I don't think it affected it. To, to be honest, I mean, I think it was. I think at the end of the competition, it was a little bit sad because there was some great sport. I mean, the individual final, you know, with Ben and and Petter and, you know, that competition was, was brilliant. You know, obviously the team final with the jump off, hats off to Sweden, you know, spectacular performances. It, it would have been nice to share that with the audience, right? That was a, right. a wonderful part of the sport. But, you know, also I'm very happy that, Tokyo and the Olympics forged forward and found a way to to make it happen. I think I think in life we need this. You know, we we all can't just you know retreat to our houses and you know lock ourselves in. You know, we're not 
that's not going to provide a very fulfilling life for a lot of people. So um, I'm glad that they found a way to make it happen, even if it was in a, you know, abbreviated form. Definitely. Give me the lowdown of the new format. Give, what, what was your kind of two cents experiencing it firsthand? I didn't think it was very good. For someone who, who maybe is listening and doesn't, doesn't know about the changes, can you give a little um, overview of what was changed? Absolutely. So our traditional format is uh, team competition first. You would ride four riders over two rounds with one drop score of the four riders. And then, you know, possibly have a jump off if there was a team tied on a, on a score for, for the gold medal. Then you would move forward to the individual competition, which each team can send uh, up to three riders if they qualified in the, in the first round of the team competition. To the individual competition, which would be two rounds, you would not carry your scores over from the team competition. You would start on zero. The, the Olympic mindset is that there are somewhat heats that if you qualify for the second round, you, you go back to zero. You have this, you all start on the same, same baseline. The change that they made was based on the fact that possibly they wanted more flags represented or more, more, more countries represented, but there was a quota for how many horses could be there. So by going, they, they put the individual first, but only three riders, and then they moved on to the team competition, three riders, 20 teams, you qualified for the second round, and then you all went back to zero, 10, there was one round, and, and possibly a jump off. So why doesn't it work? First off, having the individual first, I think, really takes away from, from the individual championship. To see an individual champion who has jumped you know, multiple rounds and then still shows great form at the end of a competition really is a, is a traditional test. And I think encompasses uh, a little more than just to jump round and a jump off and have an individual champion. I mean, that's, that's honestly a, a Grand Prix. It's a big Grand Prix. The individual champion in the Olympics should be a little bit more than just a Grand Prix winner. Then where the big problem came, the team competition, which should be the main focus. That's why I do think it should go first. When you go to three riders per team, you create an environment. And there's particularly compared to other sports that don't have another living animal. You create an environment of such extreme stress and pressure on the horses without the drop score that you see a situation like happened with Shane Sweetnam where I believe 28 faults ended up qualifying for the top 10 for the second round and everybody yeah. would go back to zero. So as Shane Sweetnam was in a situation where in any other rational mind, he's, the horse was struggling and he would have pulled up. You know, in that moment, it was very difficult for him to make that decision because he realized if he pulled up without a drop score, Ireland was out. And, you know, to, to, to be able to process all of that in that moment, in that 20 seconds that something's going wrong is difficult. You're not always going to make the right choice. And, and that, that format creates that situation where... If he knew he had a drop score, he would have he would have for surely pulled up earlier before he fell. So I think with the with the, all the extra variables in in horse sport compared to just purely humans, to go to a format where you don't have a little bit of leeway of the drop score 
to to take a little of the stress and pressure off each each rider, I, I think creates a situation that it's not really fair the athlete or the horse. So I, I would I would like them. And the and the second big problem with it is by going from fourteen to twenty teams, you start to bring in teams that aren't really at an Olympic level, and that was also clearly shown. Um, the, the lower teams struggled, mm-hmm. and this isn't track and field where you know if you're not of the level you're just at the back of the pack you know it would be like putting me in a formula one car at monaco it's probably not going to go very well yeah uh, and it's dangerous dangerous, it's dangerous. yeah uh, and that's another factor we have in horse sports that you're not going to have uh necessarily in track and field or swimming where maybe they're slower but you know the consequence is not nowhere near as as grave Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Moving forward, I mean, is there was this just kind of the the trial? Is there is there talk? Is there communication about reverting back to the old format? I think there's a lot of conversation and there is some time to do it. I think that some of the the, the sales pitch on on transition is format maybe wasn't as as true as as we were made to to believe because there are a lot of other sports that do have drop scores that don't have you know don't have this you know massive emphasis on the the only thing that's important is how many flags there are or how many countries are participating and we absolutely want our sport to open up to the world but to compete at the very highest olympic level you also have to be prepared and and development is great, but development at 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 cost of, of horse welfare isn't great. And you know that's got to be the the premier factor. That's what the FEI says. That's what our federation say. So the format needs to follow that mentality. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that jumps out and, and you know, in, in today's climate, you know, we, we talk about diversity, but I actually think it has a lot more to do with economics. You know, we, we have a problem with our sport being too expensive to be accessible to more people. And of course, that's going to hit, you know, minorities probably more. So we have to figure out a way to to make our circle bigger where people have access to interaction with horses, first and foremost, interaction with another animal, riding. It, it not only great for the soul and all the different benefits of being around horses, but then even the next step about being involved in the sport and the business and that there are opportunities. Right now, we have such a hurdle with the cost of trying to, to get involved at every level that, that, it's, that it's making the circle very, very small. Right, definitely. What's something that you feel like could be done at, I guess, at, at any level to kind of start I guess start that conversation or start making that a reality because I mean it really is something that's so important if if that doesn't change eventually I really I mean it's definitely something where we'll see the sport get smaller and smaller yeah I mean we already are seeing it get smaller and smaller you know I I think in particular from a young rider's point of view there needs to be less focus on on what the prize money is and more focus on keeping the cost down so, you know, for example, if I could have a young rider or two working for me and it would cost me very little 
to send them to the show and compete, I really wouldn't care about them being able to win a lot of prize because that's not my that's not my goal. My goal is to maybe develop some horses, right. possibly for sale. My goal is to develop riders and give them opportunities. But right now, that's that's very difficult to do because just the cost of sending them to the event and and all of the the fees related to that are just so astronomically high. So I, I don't think you know they have these. Twenty-five and fifty thousand dollar, even hundred thousand dollar young riders classes. I think bring that prize money way down. They're not trying to make a living in the sport. You know that's that's not the point. The point is just to gain experience. And while you see the model in Europe, the young riders get to compete for 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 minimal cost. Now, granted, they're not going to win a lot of prize money, but you know it gives them opportunity and it makes that that circle of opportunity much larger because it just the bottom line is so terrible. Right. Yeah. Yep. I think that's that's a really good thought. And it's definitely something that we need to continue talking about. Well, McLean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me a little bit about your life and, and everything going on. And during My the Olympic pleasure. Games, it was so fun to watch. And I wish you all the best. You as well. Have a great day. And it was nice chatting with you. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.